the Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. If you're new here or have forgotten who we are, uh, I'm Father Joseph Fessio, SJ, editor of Ignatius Press, uh, and I'm discussing this, these books in the club with Vivian Dudo, who's one of our senior editors, and Joseph Pierce, who's a man of all trades, author, lecturer, uh, linguist of, some, of sorts. Uh, and we are continuing to discuss the drama of atheist humanism by Henri de Duvac, and we've wait, made our way all the way to uh, page 451, section 7 of the chapter of the Search for New Man. And unlike most of the previous chapters in these 400 and some odd pages, this chapter has many fewer footnotes. It is Dulebach speaking on his own behalf. And for me, it's like the grand finale of a great symphony. You've heard the first three movements. This is the fourth movement. And now all the themes are being recapitulated, brought together and in, in a great chorus you know, ending the symphony. It's just, it's really just phenomenal. And what does it end in? It ends in the search for a new man is successful when it finds that Christ is the man, old and new, who will answer all of our desires and with whom the search has ended, not in some static terminus, but ended in this dynamic of Trinitarian love, which will take us into eternity. Just, this is glorious. So I, Actually, I want to quote almost the first page and a half of this, but Joseph or Vivian, do you have something before that? Well, it can't be before that. <laughs> I don't think before the first page and a half. No, go ahead, Father. Oh, well, let, let's, and let's pause and comment on these things here. Uh, so it ends chapter, section six, with this, the lie of materialistic future success. You know, that everything is a mirage. Section seven. It is then that in the midst of this sadness and pessimism that Christianity, with its conception of man, comes once again to give hope to the world. This is the only hope. I mean, the good thing about materialism is it leads to despair. It makes people realize this isn't working. Well, what, what will work then? Do we just commit suicide because nothing's going to work? Or is there a light at the end of this horrible tunnel? Without intoxicating with dreams, so eternal life is not a dream like the class of society is. Without presenting to him suspect novelties, so some new way of looking at man that turns out to be hollow, today, just as 20 centuries ago, strengthened by its unchanged doctrine, so that doesn't change, by its ever new sap, but the vitality always there anew, it comes to save all, to accomplish all, exclamation point. To save all, not just some, not just a, a chosen class, but all. What it did for the ancient soul recommends it for humanity today with a power of assimilation intact. That is to say, it takes every good thing that man can produce and sifts it, filters it, to filter out every bad thing to assimilate it. It comes to gather all that is sought in this humanity, the best of its effort and the best of its thought, in order to sublimate it again. So it takes all the good and it raises it up. And at the same time, in order to give it foundation, so it, it makes it real, it gives it a reality. A historical search would show us that in it 
we have the deepest source, the most certain origin of the current impulse of our race towards a new type of man. So he doesn't, like you say, Fabian, you're not condemning the search for a new man. He's just saying Christ has given us the foundation for achieving it. But it is much more. It is a force in the present as well as a source in the past. A force too often asleep, but intact. This is due, first of all, to its realism, because it's real. Christ is real. God is real. His promises are real. Okay, next paragraph. Well, and also the realism of what man really is. Yes. Yeah. This is a mark, realism, which cannot be overemphasized. Christianity is, of course, not realistic in the way those systems are, which which are which able to see men only the, quote, real that they have conceived, begin by changing his nature. So this isn't real by adapting, changing, uh, rejecting what's already there in nature, which discern him only a ready-made, wholly determined being, which failing to recognize his sense characteristics take no account other than to diminish it by treating it as an illusion. So what the past has shown man as illusory, because why? Because man has alienated himself by placing his value outside of himself in heaven and in God. And that's what they say is the illusion. But that's the reality. What they're saying is, cut that off from transcendence, and that's the illusion. Okay, he goes on. Uh, By treating as illusion of all that that is planned, freedom, anticipation, thirst for transcendence in him. In brief, all of all to which Christianity gives its true name, vocation, call. Christian realism is a realism of fullness. Without hiding man's mystery from him, it shows him his nobility as well. There is therefore no point in asking how to furnish additional arguments to the skeptics and disenchanted. It will never take sides with those who would sum up the whole of possible history of our race in a parable of the blind, a la Virgil, that is the blind leading the blind. That's not the whole story. The past isn't just blind leading the blind, superstition leading superstitious. It will never, in order to avoid mistakes, invite him back into the rut. It is not in the name of Christian wisdom that laziness of mind or consent to social alienations or the renunciation of dreams of greatest unity can be preached. Finishing here. Does our faith not teach us that our humanity is one, that it is altogether the same destiny, that a future is being prepared in which all are invited to collaborate? So it's not just finally communism that overcome this division of the you know, proletariat and the bourgeoisie. No, all are invited. That the salvation of each is a function of the salvation of all. That's beautifully Christian teaching there. That the universe has a meaning to which man is the key, that we're all in progress towards a city, capital C, set free from death and destiny, made for a free and brotherly society, and that we must here on earth serve our apprenticeship for our future condition. Footnote 102. On these themes in the patristic tradition, see my book, Catholicism, which develops this at great length. That all of this would have no effect on the temporal plane is not possible, or rather not admissible. But our faith reminds us, too, with equal force of two other things. And he goes on. But uh, what a peon to the the, uh, perpetuity, the perduring value of Christian anthropology, which is basically the study of Christ, God, man. I'm sorry, every time I come, I'm I'm making a homily, but that's okay. So the idea, obviously, the new man ultimately is Jesus Christ, as made manifest and revealed to us. That's the new man, and we're all called to to, to endeavour yes. to be as much like that as possible. Um, so I, I carry on almost 
almost immediately from there, actually, that following paragraph, because, you know, what are, the, what are these um, uh, two other things that reminds us? Well, the first is, uh, again, I'll quote, I'll quote the Lubach, he's so good, just, we're just going down four more lines. If one is a Christian, it is impossible to forget this very simple, very commonplace little thing, this horrible, invasive leprosy called sin. It is impossible not to take it into account if one is seriously seeking the liberation of man. Naturally egotistical, it is still too little to say. Man, that very noble being, is, through something in himself, naturally malicious. Um, uh, so, so the key thing here is that these false utopian visions uh, of the future and of humanity, such as Marxism, uh, it, it, it's built in the fact that we are a tabula rasa, that we're not we, we're not inherently broken, we're not prone to sin, and therefore we can be fixed merely by changing the nature of society. If you improve society, you improve the man. Um, and again, that's sociology, so August Comte, Marxism. Um, but you know, the fact is that we are broken. There is something naturally malicious in us. Um, this invasive leprosy, as he calls it. Uh, called sin. And one consequence of that, if we go down about eight lines, crude or sublime, all dreams of El Dorado are harmful. So all visions of utopian future do great harm because they don't take into account there will not be a heaven on earth. There can't be a heaven on earth because of who we are as human beings. This is the Christian realism that Father, you know, well, Father showed us in in reading those those opening paragraphs to this section. That's right. And so I I wanted to point out, while De Lubach is very clear that the problem with man is not caused by society, but by his fallen his fallen nature and his sin, and so therefore the solution can't simply be social engineering or social organization, or redistribution of wealth, or any of these things. None of these things are going to bring about the perfection of man. Well, de Lubach is very clear about all of that. On the bottom of 454... Wait a minute. Oh, before oh. you get there... It's all just right, after, well, we'll wait then. Where are you going? Yeah, just after Joseph's quote on 453, about eight lines from the top, bottom of the page, to believe that we will dry up the poisoned wellsprings of the heart, that is sinful, fallen man, or that we will purify perfectly through any transformation, whatever, in the external economic, social, political relation between men, as you said, Vivian, is to believe that the state of peace achieved outside would suppress the whole state of war, which is within. That's once more a utopia, that we're going to replace the state of war with the state of peace through economic, human, organizational, societal transformations, you know. We talk about systemic problems as if we can change the system, you know. Well, Go ahead as if changing the system alone will change man's nature. This is the false promise of all of these ideologies. And de Lubach is very clear about pointing out why this is not true. But he also, on the bottom of page 454, says this. Not, of course, that the historically given social structures are not responsible for many of the varieties of vices and do not carry many of the seeds of dissension. So here again, we see him being so fair to his 
communist friends, to those who say, but wait a minute, are you telling me that if I see something unjust in society that rewards vice and punishes virtue, that I'm just to do nothing about that? I'm just supposed to wait for the pearly gates to be dropped down from the sky? No, as he said before in other places, we are supposed to be using our minds, our hearts, our hands to make things better to the degree that we can. We just aren't supposed to succumb to the delusion that if I just tinker with society, I will fix mankind. I will change his nature. I will eradicate sinfulness and we'll have this heaven on earth. So this is an interesting tension for the Christian in the world to both uh, uh, not fall for utopian delusions on one hand, which always lead to tyranny, by the way, no matter what they are, or this quietism where I just put my white robe on now and stand on a hill and wait for, you know, the day of judgment or something. No, somehow right. we're supposed to work toward this heavenly kingdom while trusting that its delivery is out of our hands, is in God, and is going to transcend the very world that we're trying to improve. Yeah, I mean, the C.S. Lewis is very good on this, and I'm going to paraphrase probably poorly, um, that he says, basically, if you try to make heaven on earth, you will fail. Uh, but if you if you seek heaven first, you will make earth a better place. There you go. Uh, in other words, that, that as long as you keep your eyes on heaven, then you will behave with virtue. And ultimately, it's virtue that improves the human condition of society. So we have to have a system that actually praises virtue, that encourages virtue, that that that, that discourages vice, viciousness. Um, and in other words, you need you need Christian ethics on earth to get human justice on earth. And the only only way you do that is to keep your eyes on heaven. Right. It's Someone once said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all else will be added unto you. He was smart. <laughs> right. And you know, uh, to the degree that you do that, in even very small ways, okay, I'm going to digress if I may. We're, we're out here in Sycamore, Illinois, at the Ignatius Press Warehouse, my husband and I, and we went to lunch at Tom and Jerry's. Tom and Jerry's lunch place okay and at the at the line where you order your food there was this box of little green army men and there was a sign that said take home a little green army man and use this to remind you to pray for all of the men and women in uniform who are sacrificing themselves for you and i was so touched by this i took a picture and sent it to my marine son also in the restaurant was a sign, this is a politically incorrect place. We will say, Merry Christmas, God bless you, we salute the flag, we honor our men and women in uniform, and they go down this whole list, and then it says, if you don't like any of this, you're welcome to leave. Huh. So I took a picture of that too. So okay. sent that to my son. So in any no, case... Wait, 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 because I'm in San Francisco, and I don't think that chain has any any stores here. No, but in any case, so after our lunch, I went to the counter and I said, I would like to talk to the person responsible 
for putting this little box of green army men and putting up this sign. Is that person here? Oh, yes, that's our manager, Sarah. I said, I would like to talk with Sarah. So Sarah comes out and she's just the salt of the earth woman. And I told her, I, I have a man, I have a son in the military. I want to thank you for this little box here and for your signs and so on. I want to thank you for doing that. And she said, well, you know, we all can do little things to make the world a little bit better, can't we? Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So so to have to live with the tension that while that matters, while that makes a difference, while that makes your corner of the world a little bit better place, it doesn't bring about utopia. It doesn't bring about the perfection of all in all. That only God will bring about. But we're supposed to be cooperating with God in our own little ways to make our corner of the world and the corner we live in just that much, a little bit of heaven. Well, that's why Mother Teresa was criticized for not doing anything systemic, not arguing for social change, you know, not do political activism. She said, look, I take care of the dead, dying people here. Uh, Joseph, you have anything before 456? Uh, no, next I have is 458, so go ahead. Well, but, yeah, because he talked about... Uh, you know, back on a previous page here, uh, but our faith reminds us two, of two order other things. The first was sin, but then on page 456 in the bottom, new paragraph, he says, but there is another wounded man. And page 457, one line down, it is an ever-reborn uneasiness and a sense of dissatisfaction which prevents man not only from being content with some stable form, form but from being content with the progress carried on in the same line. So then I say, on the one hand, there's sin. On the other hand, there's a yearning that will not be satisfied by a, destin- a termination here or even a line going in some temporal direction. No, it's not enough for us. And I love where he goes with this. I love where he goes with this inner dissatisfaction that we always feel no matter where we are, what we do. I love how he then connects it with, you know, the, the suffering of life and the disappointments of life and that this uh, dealing with this in a, in, a, in a mature way is our testing ground, is our proving place, is our, he uses an expression earlier, we talked in the last section, um, what does he say? Oh, darn, where is it now? Where he says it's our, 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 our apprenticeship. Okay, this is our apprenticeship for eternal life. We're being, we're being made and molded into being more and more like Christ precisely because of our, our, our sinfulness and our disappointment and our dissatisfaction, our restlessness. This is all part of what uh, is moving us toward God. That's very good. So any, anything before the bottom of 458? Well, it depends on what you mean by the bottom. I guess it's only about 10 lines up. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the footnotes, so you, you beat me. <laughs> oh, well, but the footnote refers to something ahead of this footnote 112, and I want to quote the sentence after that, so the footnote comes first. Go ahead. Well, yeah, it's just that he, he says here, um, uh, what's he quoting from? Um, well, I, don't, I don't think it really matters. Without a head and without a heart, Humanity would be a happy beast. But who would truly want this placidity? 
In other words, if we move reason and desire from humanity, we could all be happy in this reductionist sort of docile uh, sense of cattle. And I'm reminded here of a wonderful play by Alexander Solzhenitsyn called The Candle in the Wind. And And it's basically about this highly strung woman who suffers greatly because she's somewhat neurotic. She's highly strung. And so they use her as a guinea pig for the new science of, 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 of neurosurgery. And they basically operate on her brain. And in consequence, she becomes comfortably numb. Um, and, you know, and what Solzhenitsyn is saying, you know, it's better for her to have lived and suffered than to have basically been numbed from reality and be comfortable. So that's the whole point here, that ultimately suffering, as, as, as Vivian was saying here, is necessary uh, as our apprenticeship um, to, to, to in order to grow, actually, and, and, and ironically and paradoxically, in order to grow happier, right? We have to accept our apprenticeship in suffering in order to actually grow in joy. Right, which is why in these utopian visions of things, there's usually plenty of drug use, right? Because, okay, you give everybody the same amount of food and water and give them a... an apartment block, you know, made out of concrete, give everybody the same, you know, of everything. And so why aren't they happy? All their physical needs are met. So what's the big deal? Oh, because there's still going to be this restlessness, this yearning, this dissatisfaction, this hurting, this, the suffering. Well, then let's, let's give them lots of drugs. Notice how that always goes kind of hand in hand with these sorts of societies. Yes, and he says, just after that footnote, which Joseph referred to on page 458, what ideal could be as miserable as that of an earthly existence henceforth without struggle, without contradiction, without suffering, but also without any momentum, any search for the absolute, exclamation point. Yes, and that's why, you know, in uh, Brave New World, Huxley's Brave New World, uh, that famous... uh, meeting between the savage and one of the world managers and the savage you know is this boy who's been raised on a reservation of some kind for the people who end up being born in the natural way you know and they all out there and he's discovered Shakespeare he's discovered the Bible he's and he's having this meeting with the manager and he's saying yes you've reduced all suffering and you've reduced all you got rid of pain you got all these things but where's the heroism where's the where's the nobility where's the struggle that makes men great where's where's all that and the manager says you don't understand in order to have all that we would have to have an unstable world <laughs> and we've gotten rid of instability don't you see yeah 460 before that anybody not me a third of the way down but after the call of the god of love has sounded directly among us after a cloud of witnesses from generation to generation has never ceased to transmit it to us do we not see that the situation has changed and that another more positive way is open is it the way of discipleship the way of the voice of god that was sounded in christ and then the cloud of witnesses how about page 461, anybody? Sure. Five lines up or so. The disciples of Christ do not feel they are survivors of a shipwrecked world, but pilots charged with guiding into port. That's a great image. That is, is a beautiful image. It is. I, 
circled it. I put stars all around it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Actually, well, just, just to make a connection, just because I read it today and getting ready for not, not today, I, I didn't think moment, but in the final section, just to jump ahead, because it's just it's very relevant to that quote, if I can find it. If not, I can remember it. He talks about Rambeau, the, the French decadent poet's uh, uh, image uh, of the drunken boat. So the idea that that, that that decadent man is just a drunken boat, sort of lurching and at, and at the complete mercy of the tides and the winds of passion and the storms of life, and he's a basically, if he's not a wreck already, he will be. And, you know, and you compare that with this image, this metaphor of that we are not survivors of a shipwrecked world, but pilots charged with guiding into port. The difference between a drunken boat and, and, and this, this pilot of the ship is, is, is uh, very, very pronounced. And now think, too, in terms of uh, what a lighthouse is, providing a guiding light. You know, the pilot steering the ship through the storm often needs the guidance of a light coming from some other source. And that's what we Christians are supposed to be, being guided by not just our own wisdom and our own ideas, but God himself is guiding us to a safe harbor. But there would be no necessity for being guided if there weren't a storm in the first place. And there wouldn't be any bravery if I didn't have to overcome my fear and anxiety that I'm being tossed about. I mean, to see all of this in God's providence. Yes, we have the heavenly GPS. You know, to see it all in God's providence is a completely different vision from the the Marxist or the Nazi or the whatever, pick whatever totalitarian you want, who just sees the world and everything in it as just so much shipwreck that they have been tasked with fixing. Yep. So GPS, I think my father, God's GPS me? is God's providential safety. God's GPS. There you go. Is there the acronym for you? Yeah. There you go. Okay. So let's come back. We, we may finish this book in the next session. So be prepared for the next book to discuss, which is Mandate from Heaven. Is that what it's called, Vivian? Yes. Uh, so we, you're expecting to start that two sessions from now? Next what? session, oh. we, Next session, we finish this. Yes. Living in Hope. And then the session after that, the Mandate from Heaven. We hope. Yes. All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, look forward to seeing you or you seeing us <laughs> later. God bless you all. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.